I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Well, what a difference a year makes, or maybe not. Some of you who've been following Trump's Executive Order 13950, the equity gag order, probably were excited when President Biden withdrew the order. The order, if you recall, banned the teaching of structural racism, critical race theory, and intersectionality with an idea that these ideas were discriminatory. They harmed white people. Well, it didn't go away just because President Biden withdrew the order. In fact, the problem has gotten bigger than even it was last year. But rest assured, we've been busy too. The African-American Policy Forum, along with our colleagues and our allies, have been working tirelessly to resist this effort to censor anti-racist education. Most recently, we gathered a stellar cast of faculty to lead a week-long critical race theory summer school in mid-August. Over the course of five days, we engaged hundreds of participants in exactly the kind of honest, critical thinking that opponents of CRT are trying to prevent. And wow, was it energizing. So today, we're going to share with you one of the week's plenary conversations. It asks a lot of questions and hopefully provides some answers. From where did CRT emerge? What was happening at the time? Why did we call it critical race theory? What are some of the key insights that we can call at this moment to help us in our efforts to protect the very existence of critical thinking about race? So here it is, looking back to move forward, the insurgent origins of critical race theory. To get started, I I want to share something with you. Here's a quote. Today, we are in the throes of a powerful, almost evangelical movement. It is well-organized and highly visible, and it boasts a string of impressive victories to call its own. It has friends in high places, the media, Congress, the White House, the Supreme Court. It has a political strategy, a research agenda, and a grassroots and propaganda campaign that are among the most sophisticated and efficient in today's cyberbolic society. It has no known rival, and its resources seem to be endless. Unfortunately, this movement is not ours. In fact, to the extent that we're in the picture at all, it is only as cannon fodder. Now, I'm not one to quote myself, but this time I'm gonna do it. That was me in 1999. So what we're facing right now has been brewing for over two decades. It's time to do something about it. We thought we were going to try to do something about it last year. We thought this was an opportunity. We were in the midst of um, the epidemic, both COVID and police uh, brutality. There was a moment in which the 
protests seem to create a new wave, a new window, a new possibility. So we decided let's do something we've been wanting to do for a long time. Let's pull together a critical race theory summer school. Let's invite people into our space. Let's talk about how we can learn about critical race theory through these pandemics and how we can learn about these pandemics through critical race theory. And so we came together for five days. We had about a dozen faculty. We had a couple hundred people and we really rolled up our sleeves, really talked about how to understand these pandemics through the prism of critical race theory. We talked about critical race theory as not a thing, but as a way of seeing a way of understanding that informs a way of acting. It was a powerful moment. It brought together a wide and broad section of academics, activists, journalists, athletes. Of course, we had lawyers, we had diversity and inclusion professionals. We had some elected officials, high school teachers, students. This was a high for us. We left summer school last year determined to ride this new wave of activism and energy. Barely six weeks after the end of summer school, the then president gave a speech framing critical race theory as un-American, bringing a far right-wing idea to the center of American politics, the idea that anti-racism was racism, an idea that is as old as the lost cause, as old as the quarrel forgotten, which is what President Wilson called the Civil War. This reflexive response to anti-racism to the effort to make real the promises of a multiracial democracy has been playing out in real time now, rising again like Michael Myers in Halloween. It is, as I wrote in Race Reform and Retrenchment, a deeply entrenched pattern that reforms, however symbolic they might be, give rise to a counter movement. Sometimes that counter movement is more powerful than that which prompted that response. And what's frightening is that these counter movements can last longer than the reforms that prompted them. Reconstruction lasted about 20 years, give or take. Redemption, the counter revolution to freedom, lasted eight decades. The civil rights movement, active race reform, perhaps two decades, give or take. The backlash has been moving since the 1970s. So the George Floyd protests went on for about three months in active protests. The backlash we are experiencing today has lasted nearly a year. The backlashes are swift and the cycles are moving more and more quickly. So we've seen this before, attacks on ideas, attacks on literacy itself being the tried and true response to disruptions of the status quo. So think about it, reconstruction, slave revolts, Brown versus board education, check, check, check. So this is familiar fire, right? We can anticipate this, right? We're ready to fight it, right? Wrong. When Trump issued this order, I called many people, contacted friends in the civil rights movement, DEI, folks in the academy. One of those friends, Janae Nelson at the Legal Defense Fund, was as alarmed as I was. Most of my other colleagues, allies, were hopeful that this moment would pass with the election of President Biden. What did happen is President Biden did withdraw the order that banned the teaching of critical race theory, structural racism, implicit bias, intersectionality from the government. 
but the crises didn't pass. Today, there are more than 27 state legislatures and 165 national and local organizations that have made efforts to restrict education about racism. They seek to stamp out anti-racist thinking and activism. On September 1st, coming up pretty soon, teachers in many of these states will be fined or fired or school districts will lose money if they teach what's called divisive ideas like critical race theory, the 1619 Project, implicit bias, anti-racism, intersectionality, diversity. Now, what's important to realize and why we are here is that these consequences are not just for a season. Yes, 2022, 2024 are in the crosshairs, but this is a movement for not just the season, but for a century. So we need to get ready. We need to learn. We need to know what each other knows. We need to be able to move. So this summer school is modeled after Freedom Summer, an educational activist big tent to bring all of the usual suspects together. Yeah, they've lumped us all together. So while we're together, let's work together. Let's articulate a common response to this common threat. Let's share critical tools. Let's energize ourselves for the fight that's to come. So over five days, we're gonna begin each morning with a plenary that will lay out a key dimension of the current environment. Today's plenary will be discussing the origins of critical race theory and the travel of these ideas across disciplines and across sectors. We'll be highlighting the context out of which critical race theory rose. And in this context, we'll be trying to understand what the analogy is to this current moment. And we've coaxed some folks out of retirement. I don't know if many of you remember, there was a, there was a movie, I think it was called Red, where Bruce Willis and Morgan Freeman and Helen Mirren play retired spies who come out of retirement for one last life-saving job. Well, we've got some folks who have come out of retirement, some folks near retirement, who are willing to throw down in this moment because they realize how high the stakes are. So I hope you enjoy this rare opportunity to learn from a cross-generational faculty of experts, ranging from some of the founding leaders in the field to a new group of law students, college students, and high schoolers, all of whom in various ways seek to understand the racial contours of our society in order to transform it. And so now I'm delighted to turn over the podium to my good friend and colleague, Danny Hosang, to get our first plenary discussion going. Danny? Great. Kim, um, thanks so much. Thanks for giving us our bearings with a call to action there and reminding us of the just profound stakes of this work. It's really an honor to welcome everyone to this first plenary, uh, looking backward to move forward, the insurgent origins of CRT. My name is Danny Hosang. I'm a really proud board member of the African-American Policy Forum. I teach in ethnic studies at Yale, and I'm just really thrilled to be back. Um, so for this plenary, we're thrilled to have um, Kim Crenshaw, director of the African-American Policy Forum, Columbia and UCLA School of Law, Anthony Cook at Georgetown Law Center, Gloria Ladson-Billings, who's just wrapping up a long and distinguished career at the University of Wisconsin, Gary Peller at Georgetown Law Center, and uh, Rob Williams 
Williams at the University of Arizona Law School. Um, so one of the first themes we wanna, we're gonna take up here are these historical conditions that give rise to CRT. And to make clear, this did not come out of nowhere. It's instead a very complex set of circumstances, particular to the post-civil rights era that gives rise to CRT. So Kim, you enter Harvard Law in the early 1980s. And like many other elite law schools, this is an institution that was kind of dragged, kicking and screaming from what was historically a very, very provincial focus of, of educating a small, small subset of the public, mostly white, elite, Protestant men. So you come as part of uh, you know, less than two decades after the passage of landmark uh, civil rights and anti-discrimination laws that had been passed. And yet in spite of the presence of these laws, and their professed commitment to formal equality, you and you know these other law, young scholars and students are, you know have determined that you know you don't have all the analytical tools, resources, frameworks to really address these longstanding hierarchies. So um, I thought we could start, Kim, by inviting you to tell us a little bit more about these conditions. What was it like for you and your colleagues moving into those spaces, and what did you feel like you were missing? We consider ourselves, Danny, the post-civil rights uh, generation. We entered into these institutions that had been uh, newly diversified. Now, some of them had been formally segregated, others informally less so. There had always been a few people of color uh, that Harvard uh, matriculated. But for the most part, Harvard, like many other elite institutions, did not have a very active process for bringing people of color into uh, the law school. So we were we were that generation, and we got there having come. Many of us from uh, institutions that themselves had been integrated from student activism. I came from Cornell University, and many people remember that you know Cornell created its Africana Studies department after African American students took over the student union. So uh, our expectations were created in these spaces in which black students fought hard for uh, curricular developments for professors who were there to serve what we thought we were going to higher education to do, to join this movement, to provide the kind of resources and, and support that many of us grew up watching. I grew up watching uh, a Thurgood Marshall. I grew up thinking that I wanted to become a lawyer in order to further unlock the systems of exclusion and white supremacy. So entered Harvard Law School, going there to study with the great uh, Derek Bell, whose book, Race, Racism in American Law, I'd first read while I was an undergrad, was really taken by the lithograph of uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in, in the first pages of that book. It symbolized precisely what we thought we were about. We will run the race. We will succeed in running the race, but we will do so never forgetting who we are and why we are there, who we are a part of and what we are trying to transform. So imagine our surprise when we got there. And as they say, Bill had left the building. <laughs> Uh, just before we arrived. And so our sense was, well, it's disappointing, but clearly Harvard has now recognized the value of this kind of 
education. And it was shocking to find out that the school did not see um, this kind of coursework as critical, did not see this cohort coming in as those who had a right to be educated about not just how to file a lawsuit, but to understand the broader context of how law has not only shaped race, it has constituted what we think race is. It has created the conditions that are associated with racial power. So we had a long struggle um, with the law school around uh, teaching Derek's courses. And we finally decided as students, we would just do it ourselves. We would create an alternative course. We would bring people across the country like Chuck Lawrence, Richard Delgado, uh, Denise Cardi-Bania, Neil Gatanda. We would bring them to teach chapters out of Derek Bell's book. And through that process, we began to create an understanding about how law functions and how it was functioning in that moment to reverse the advancing civil rights movement, to rationalize what we had encountered, basically a faculty of more than 70 people with only one tenured African-American. And in that process of coming together, we began to see that there were common themes around the way that race was imagined and treated. There were common interests in being able to critique that and that commonality stretched across all of our, our different racial groups and into other uh, axes of subordination like gender and sexuality. So that was the beginning, that was the lesson. I'll end just by saying sometimes it is the case that confronting racial power allows us to understand how it is rationalized and that becomes the new target. So it used to be the white only signs. When those came down, what then became clear to us is that meritocracy and various other ideologies were now functioning to justify and rationalize a society that continued to be structured in clearly predictable, clearly inequitable, racialized ways. I'm just so taken by this, like, account. Arriving to a school, Professor Bell leaves, and, you know, it's, it, you know, I'm sh the sense of, like, despondency and, like, uncertainty, and yet the practice is, all right, what are we going to do to figure out how to make sure that this knowledge and body of work that we know is out there is not evacuated from this institution? We're the ones that are going to do it. So that's just so remarkable. And then just, I think the second thing to build on in the story is, you know, this notion, this was not, I mean, this is the time of Reaganism and Bork and a conservative reinsurgence, but we would generally describe these law schools as, you know, liberal places. And so we're not, as you're saying, seeing the kind of like, what we're, we're hearing is that, that language of neutrality, of meritocracy, of objectivity, of the law being outside of social relations. That's the site of the, of, of the forms of racial power you're trying to address. So there's a lot happening there for us to kind of think about. Um, and, and now's really, you know, maybe a, a time to bring in Gary. Gary, you're also coming in to um, Harvard at this time. What were the conditions for you? And I'm thinking both personally, but also politically, the larger conditions around that led you to seek an intellectual community that might generate new questions and frameworks. And, you know, for many folks who have been to law school, there's like, you get into your first, your 1L classes, you take them, you keep your head down, you focus on the books, and you don't ask other questions. You're among the folks that didn't do that. So what's miss, what was missing for you at the time? And what were some of the sources of political inspiration that led you to seek out this group? 
Thanks so much, Danny. And this is very interesting. I think I, as I'm listening, uh, there are bridges, and that's what I want. I want to build to because Kim and I show up at Harvard different years, almost a decade apart. I started in '77, in obviously different situations, but we start we start similarly as outsiders. So you're right that this was happening at a lot of different institutions, but Harvard is a little special in this because it was like the citadel of intimidation. <laughs> so, so partly I, I knew I was a kind of diversity as a, as a poor Southern kid, working class Southern kid. Um, and, and, and my sense was, wow, you know, uh, I've grown up very conscious of, of inequality. I grew up in Atlanta in, in the citadel of the, of the conventional civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and Andrew Young and Ralph Abernathy were from Atlanta. And that's where the SCLC was based. And so my image was going to Harvard Law School to, to use the law and the arguments I could, the neutral arguments I could learn to fight for justice. And that was my image of, of what the law was going to be. Another aspect I want to say also, part of the intimidation, I had a vision of knowledge as just a kind of thing that's collected and the problem it was distributive. Everybody should have access to the card catalog or to the knowledge base. And if everybody had not access to the same thing, it would be fair. But at Harvard Law School, I really got the lesson hard. And that's what Kim was just talking about. That knowledge, it does not exist in a pre-made form ready to be discovered and distributed. It is created. And so I learned as, as you, just talked, Danny, that the knowledge that was being created at Harvard Law School wasn't a particular knowledge that I was going to use to fight for right in the Supreme Court. The most I could really take from it was I was learning how the ruling class told itself that it wasn't the ruling class, convinced itself that something else was going on. That's a different thing than I thought I was going to learn, but it was really valuable. It was a valuable way to approach knowledge knowledge as a construct for the stories that are left out, but also that the ruling class's base of knowledge claim to neutrality was itself just their narrative. That's so, uh, Gary, so interesting because that, that kind of like disavowal and innocence that you're talking about that so animates, you know, in particular, like elite education and, and how central that is to what you are also collectively trying to unmask, which is that there are relations of power embedded in all these texts and frameworks and learning. These are not neutral. They're not just tools that anyone can pick up. They're central to this. And yet there was something else, right, that had to be built and developed. So let's turn now, uh, Gary, and, and just so appreciate that to, um, you know, a, a colleague of yours, Rob Williams, uh, and to welcome Robin. And I think Rob comes in the same year, as I understand it, or right around that time. So Rob, um, you arrive into the Legal Academy about the same time, um, but animated by some other questions and, and experiences. So I hope to invite you to talk about, in particular, as an Indigenous scholar, what was missing in the political landscape and Legal Academy for you? Um, especially as it relates to questions of indigenous politics and law and the, the material experiences of native people. Yeah, yeah. Gary and I uh, were in the same section and it was the best of times and the worst of times. Um, you know, what was missing? Indians. I was the only Indian, not only in my 1L class, I was the only Indian in the whole damn law school. There were no native people there. It was a predominantly white 
male uh, institution. I remember going up uh, to the admissions office and asking, you know, who was the last Indian to come to Harvard? Uh, it was, uh, let's see, I think it was Larry Baca. It had been like six or seven years before they'd even admitted a, a native into the law school. Again, because I was, you know, affirmative action, I ended up getting in, I think, in June. Uh, and they told me there was no housing on campus. So they send you a list of all the people who don't have housing. And I noticed it was all, you know, black and Hispanic uh, kids, you know, because we're all the last ones in. So it was a pretty lonely experience when I got there, particularly having grown up, uh, you know, in, in Baltimore. I'm a proud member of the Lumbee tribe, a lot of Lumbees in Baltimore. Uh, I wasn't used to that sort of sense of alienation. My first semester, you know, I had come to law school because it was 1977. You know, I had was a teenager when you, know, you had uh, the American Indian Movement, you had the takeover of the BIA uh, and Alcatraz. I was reading all of Vine Deloria's books. I had come to law school because I wanted to be an Indian rights warrior. Uh, and then of course, even in that first semester, there were no cases involving Indians. There was nothing going on with native issues. Uh, it wasn't until my second semester in property law that the first class we took was Johnson v. McIntosh. And I knew a little bit about Johnson v. McIntosh, and I was so excited um, that this was going to be the case that we talked about. And it's taught as a chain of title case, you know, two competing chains, one from the Indians, one from the white folks. And uh, it's the case that establishes the doctrine of discovery. Um, but nothing was really talked about the sort of ethics, the morality, the crime, the historic crime, the genocide that was involved in that case. Um, the only other case that we studied then was T. Hitton, a 1955 case in which the court holds that uh, if Congress doesn't recognize your native property, it doesn't exist. So, you know, it, and I remember in my second year, um, we actually admitted another native student, Sue Williams, uh, and we asked for a winter term course to be taught. You know, Harvard has this three-week winter term course. So they brought in a white guy to teach it, Harry Saxe. Uh, and the irony of that was that, uh, you know, it was a war stories course. You know, he was a big partner in a big Washington law firm, told all his war stories. His big case was USV Sioux Nation, which he argued and he was proud of, but he never mentioned the fact that the Sioux told him, don't bring the case. We don't want the money for the Black Hills. We want the Black Hills back. Then I took Derek's course. And the great thing about Derek's course was it was scheduled right against Martha Field's federal court. So all the smart law review guys took that course. And it was really just a lot of folks of color in that course. And, and Derek preached and he told stories. And, and that's what really got me into, you know, we didn't have a name for it then. Uh, but, you know, Derek convinced me that stories had power and that, you know, they, they were a way to frame an intellectual experience in a way that the white world didn't understand. But when I went through race and races, I said, there was nothing on Indians there. So I went to Derek after class. I said, you know, Professor Bell, I love your class, but you don't have anything on Indians. And he says, well, that's your story to tell. Uh, and that really was the inspiration that, that you know, drove me into law teaching. There was, I did some research. There was one Native American law professor in the entire country, Renard Strickland. So I figured there was a lot of room to do this stuff. And, and that was kind of how I got my start. But it was that sort of you know, sense of alienation, isolation, a total lack of coverage or concern about indigenous issues um, that made me realize that the place I could have the most impact was, was as a teacher, was teaching this stuff. Uh, from that perspective that I didn't have a name yet until Kim gave it to us. So. Mm. Uh, Rob, just so many things there. I mean, you know, and first, again, as a reminder of the time when you're talking about the like profound 
like just absence of any native presence in these institutions. This is after the civil rights movement, after wounded knee. I mean, this is supposed to be the moment of integration and incorporation and how limited that was. Let's turn to Gloria now um, uh, and, and really welcome uh, her in. Gloria at the time is not in law school. At the time, she's completing her PhD and actually in curriculum and teacher education at Stanford uh, right around the same period. But many of the same dynamics, Gloria, that uh, are being discussed here about kind of race neutrality, colorblindness, liberal ambivalence, they're also very, very much at work in the field of education. So um, I just wanted to invite you, Gloria, to talk more about those conditions. So like what's missing for you as you're pursuing your doctorate in education? And, you know, like what are you also thinking about in terms of the law as a kind of structuring dynamic in that process? Well, thank you, Danny. And thank you to Kim and Gary, Rob. I'm excited to be here because, yes, I started uh, my PhD program at Stanford in the late 1970s. So I am really a child of the 60s. I witnessed, you know, I'm an eyewitness to the civil rights movement, if you will, having grown up in Philadelphia, being sort of in the midst of things happening. And I'll tell you that the biggest shock for me going to what we call the left coast was that there was not one black faculty member in the graduate school of education. I mean, if there's anything that black people were getting PhDs in, it was education. And yet not one on the faculty of Stanford. Uh, I've always had one essential question um, that's driven my scholarship. And that is, how do you explain racial disparity in education? That, that's the only thing I've always wanted to know. Well, once I started sitting in these classes, and I'll never forget sitting in one professor's class who said, if you don't appreciate Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms, you are culturally deprived the West Philly in me kicked in. And I said, if you don't appreciate James Brown, you're culturally deprived. Of course, I've dropped the class and probably may have cut off my nose to spite my face because he's quite a famous professor. But I was like, I, I'm not going to be able to sit through that. The explanations for racial disparity that were still very prevalent in these late 1970s, 1980s in education schools and Stanford being a number one, it's a very deficit. Uh, notion that somehow there's something deficient in these kids' homes, in their language, in their parents' uh, parenting skills, in their communities. The sociology folks, the sociology of ed folks will talk a little bit about social disadvantage, right? That they're disadvantaged and that what, what will help is school desegregation. If we just get them in a desegregated school, that will help. Well, having taught in Philadelphia in desegregated schools, I knew that was not going to be the answer. It was really not until I wandered over to the program in Afro-Am and met Sylvia Winter and St. Clair Drake that what I heard was a totally different explanation. And that explanation was that there is something systemic that makes this happen decade after decade century after century. Now the parallel thing that is happening while I'm in graduate school is Derek Bell has come to teach at the law school at Stanford. And the white students rebelled because they weren't going to have him teach their contracts course. So it was a very interesting moment begin to see this sort of challenge from white students rejecting this eminent scholar 
And I do have to tell you that um, there, we have open records laws here in Wisconsin. And so I was able to read my tenure file and Derek wrote one of my tenure letters. It was the best letter ever. Uh, one, because it wasn't long and ponderous and going through each and every little piece of thing that you've written. He wrote, this scholar reminds me of the old uh, rhythm and blues song. She may not be the one you want, but she sure enough is the one you need. And I thought, okay, that, that's, that's the way to say it. You know, uh, It was so powerful for me to be able to understand that the law, the law as a system was still driving this inequality, that even when the law pretended or purported to be on the side of folks who were dispossessed, oppressed, it always seemed to get flipped. You could go case by case and begin to see that every time there was something of a victory, that the system allowed a kind of retrenchment that said, nope, not doing that. We're not having that. It's not going to happen that way. And so we, if you look at US schools today, we are in as bad shape, if not worse, than we were in the 1950s. I literally gave a talk at the law and education conference at Chapel Hill and said, you know what, I'm tired of fighting for Brown at this point. If you would just give me a real Plessy, it would be so much better than this fake Brown. And so uh, it's probably one of the places where I kind of sloughed over into the field of law and the education people just kind of disowned me. <laughs> Gloria, I cannot imagine how like touching and moving that must have been when you had like uh, Derek's letter in your hand and to be able to think about all those connections. I, uh, this is a good time, you know, just to, to close out this round to turn to Anthony now. Um, so, uh, and we're going back to the legal academy. So uh, Anthony is not at Harvard. Uh, he enters uh, Yale at about the same time. Pretty early in your career, you write this really influential article in the Harvard Law Review about a field known as critical legal studies or CLS. You really focused here on um, an engagement of the differences between CLS and much more race conscious and race critical scholarship. So I'm hoping that you could just start us off by talking a little bit about CLS, what that is, and what the exchange was between folks like yourselves that were, you know, uh, inspired by some of it and yet had other reservations. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much, Danny. Really appreciate uh, being here and uh, having an opportunity to talk to you guys. Look, a, you know, a lot of the, the, the distinction uh, between critical race theory and critical legal theories is found really in the discussion we've had so far because so much that came out of critical race theory was about this approach to understanding law as a dynamic uh, or institution of power that reproduce racialized hierarchy, right? I was born in Magnolia, Mississippi, the Southwest quadrant of the state in the early 60s. And one of my earliest childhood memories was seeing a cross being burned in the churchyard across the road from my home, right? My mother rushing out onto the porch and picking me up in her arms and bringing me back inside and crying. You know, seeing the men of the church gather, they weren't called the deacons of defense, but they just as well might've been. I left Mississippi and went to, to Princeton University and during my first year at Princeton, we were coming back from a gospel choir rehearsal. And, you know, my God, because I was trying to find Jesus and God at Princeton, because it was a very difficult place to be uh, during this time, right? 
And we were stopped by police officers. The police officers dragged us out of the car, threw us against the hood of the car, uh, stripped us of our coats in the dead of winter, searching us. There was nothing to be found, keeping us in the cold, and then eventually putting us in the car and driving us across Route 1 into cornfields, where we thought, my God, this is it, <laughs> you know, only to resurface back onto Route 1 and to be let out. It was a traumatic experience. We tried to talk with our professors and people about the experience, and we got, you know, the, the liberal response, you know, that we're going to find these bad actors, we're going to do something about these bad actors, and, you know, we're going to rectify this situation. This is an embarrassment for Princeton, and we're ashamed that this happened to you, so forth and so on. And when a number of us organized to really kind of press the issue beyond bad actors to really engage, you know, this is a police department. There were seven police officers here. This is beyond an isolated bad actor. This has to do something with the way this police department in Princeton is structured. We found no advocates. We found no supporters, right? So, so in, in many ways, even before I encountered critical race theory and critical legal studies and these traditions, right? I was part of this lived experience in which, you know, Malcolm X said that the American South is anything south of the Canadian border, right? So race and the way that it operated, both where I was raised in Mississippi, at Princeton, stories of New Haven, when I went to school there at Yale, all of these stories all kind of, you know, went to, to affirm a reality about American history and Black people's place in American history, that race was a serious factor of determining how people engaged you, looked at you, and how they operated in the world. So when we first started having our meetings with critical legal studies, right, uh, Kim and Gary, you remember the meeting in Buffalo, right, just how tense and contentious that meeting was, and it continued to be with members of critical legal studies that we were trying to engage in discourse, slamming doors and walking out and, you know, getting very upset about what we were doing. But what we were primarily doing was to try to recenter in their thinking and understanding the importance, the primacy of race, right? So here we come along and we're basically saying to critical legal studies proponents, you're not going far enough, <laughs> right? And you're not going deep enough because if you go deeper, you will understand the ways in which racial formations are determining even the capitalist relationships that you're trying to critique. We're not gonna be in a position of allowing you to reduce our pain and our suffering to only a critique of capitalism, as important, as critical as that is. And most of us were on board with a critique of capitalism. But what we saw was that white supremacy and racial formation were themselves also constitutive of these class and capitalist relationships. That at worst, it was a dialectical relationship between the formations of race and white supremacy and capitalist relations and all other kinds of power dynamics that needed to be taken into consideration. And here we were saying that our writing, our scholarship, and our engagement with you, whether you like it or not, is going to require that you deal with that in a very substantive kind of way. And it shook people up. It shook, it shook shit up, right? And before you know it, you know, there were all kinds of tensions that evolved out of that and that poured forth from that. But nevertheless, I think it turned out to be a great thing, of course. Some of my closest friends are critical legal studies proponents <laughs> to, to utilize an over, overused trope.
Thank you, Anthony, so much there. Uh, I mean, first of all, the, the story about like the actual violence and threats of violence and physical violence that haunted all of this is like it's such a reminder about sometimes it's experienced as the climate in the classroom, the you know indifference of the faculty, and sometimes it's experienced in much more intense, life-threatening ways. You know, at this time, I'm also just struck, Anthony. I mean, it's it is unusual today to think about encountering colleague scholars, a body of work that you disagree with, but saying there's something here I want to, I'm invested in, and I want us to push it beyond that. And I'm willing to stay in the room to figure that out so that we can all be kind of sharper and better. And so I think there's just something like so important about that practice there, being able to both incorporate and contest at the same time and the kind of complex, mm. complex skills that that requires and what's at stake there. So thank you, Anthony. What an amazing, amazing first round uh, of, of just kind of insights of stories of experiences that we put together. We can see all the connections between all of these. We're gonna go into a, a kind of second round now um, where the hope is we can help to illustrate some of the particular key commitments and principles of critical race theory as Anthony has started to help us do. So uh, for this round, uh, Rob, I actually wanted to start and turn to you. One of the misconceptions about CRT is that it was organized foundationally and exclusively around a, a so-called black-white dichotomy that was then only later applied to other racialized and colonized groups. Well, certainly for indigenous nations and scholars and movements, there's very important distinctions that I want to invite you to kind of talk about in the ways that subordination and power work. But um, as one of the few scholars, certainly at the time and now more prominently today, uh, thinking and writing about federal Indian law, could you just say a little bit more about what those connections were for you and what drew you to this body of work as a way to think about sovereignty, law, power, et cetera? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing to understand about Indian law uh, is it's so much different from the laws that govern the rights of other groups. We still have our Plessy v. Ferguson, Johnson v. McIntosh, the case I talked to you about, is still good law. The, in fact, it, it was cited by uh, Justice Ginsburg. You know, and I remember when she visited the law school, I said, did you ever read the opinion? It's, it's absolutely horrible. The racist language, you know, Justice Marshall is very explicit. He says that the character and religion of the inhabitants of America afforded an apology for considering them as a people over whom the superior genius of Europe could claim an ascendancy. Uh, and that was why under the doctrine of discovery, whenever a Christian uh, European monarch subject discovered land occupied by infidels, heathens, and savages, and Indians qualified as savages because they had no religion as far as Europeans were concerned, um, the discovering European sovereign could claim superior rights. And that's the source of congressional plenary power today. It's why we have the clandestine graveyards being discovered at Indian schools. Uh, it gave Congress the power to pull Indian kids out of the home and, and kill the Indian and save the man. It's why we had reservations and you guys have all the hotels. You know, Congress can unilaterally extinguish Indian title to land and they've done it, you know, throughout history. So one of the big differences for an indigenous scholar trying to work with the tools of critical race theory uh, is dealing with the fact that we still live under a system of racism. It is systemic. It's not hidden or underground. It hasn't you know, gone behind closed doors. It's applied every day uh, by US courts. Now, Congress can use that power sometimes you know, to help tribes. That's why tribes have gaming, for example. Tribes now have control over adoption under the Indian Child Welfare Act. But this structure, this, this system based on ancient racist premises that Indians as savages had no rights 
is still there. So for me, in, in sort of you know approaching this material, uh, you know, like Anthony, I, I came out of a, a CLS background. I remember it, read a lot of Foucault, uh, read, read Gadamer, uh, did a lot of Nietzsche. Uh, you know, came out of that sort of Marxist phenomenological background. But some of the other work that I found helpful uh, was Malcolm X, for example, because of his focus on black separatism. I think, again, one of the key distinctions that an indigenous crit scholar has to deal with is this fact that Indians don't really want integration. You know, if you look at the classic civil rights movement, it's, it's integration and, and fighting to become part of the American dream. You know, our dream is out on the res. We want our own self-determination. We want that S word, sovereignty, which is an odd word for tribes to use because it comes from 14th century Norman property law. Um, but we want self-determination. My, my colleague and my, my casebook uh, co-editor, Charles Wilkinson, says what Indians want is a measured separatism. And this idea that, you know, within our own communities, we want the right to police our communities. We want the right to regulate land. We want the water resources. Uh, so I found a lot of power in the works of, of, of Malcolm X and, his, and some of his ideas. And again, I remember, you know, going to some of those early CLS conferences and remember the slam doors and remembering, you know, not being recognized. And you can imagine um, what it was. Again, I was the only native in, in the whole group <laughs> of anyone. And, and the other thing I found was that when I tried to share my work, uh, because it was so different from what my white colleagues were used to, it was uh, not received. I didn't get a lot of encouragement. I ended up uh, sharing a lot of my work with people who are doing American Indian studies, ethnic studies uh, in those programs. And so I've always said I come out of a native knowledge perspective. Um, it was that native knowledge of, of storytelling uh, combined with sort of uh, the, the CLS canon uh, and then reading the work of my minority scholar colleagues, which at the time we didn't know was critical race theory, but became critical race theory. We, our, our background reading for the clinics uh, are things like uh, Derek Bell's racial realism, uh, interest convergence. One of the first things I always ask my students on any project that we're doing and when they graduate or doing Indian law, where's the interest convergence? You're not going to get anywhere unless there's something in it for white folks. Uh, and you've got to develop a rhetorical strategy to make them see that. Um, so, you know, those themes are sort of weaved throughout all of, all of my work, my teaching, my research uh, and my outreach continuing to work in the clinic. Um, I'm doing a lot of administration now. I don't write as much as I like to, but the administration is, is working on the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program, which, which we promote as a program um, sort of dedicated to advancing uh, critical race theory and critical race practice um, to achieve the human rights of Indigenous peoples. Thanks so much. That's so rich, Rob. Uh, um, Rob, I, I just so appreciate like the starting with the reference to Malcolm X because it disrupts this notion that like there's these clear lines between an integrationist commitment for you know racialized people of color within the U.S. and sovereignty for indigenous people, and that those lines are actually much more complex, and that the critique of liberal integrationism has a long, long history in genealogy, even if under the law it operates quite differently in um, Black freedom struggles. So I think this is a good place to um, bring us back to Gloria. So, and we're going to fast forward a little bit. So by the 1990s, Gloria, you had really um, brought to the attention of so many colleagues in the field of education, uh, this body of work, critical race theory. And there's a great piece you have titled, Just What is Critical Race Theory? And What's It Doing in a Nice Field Like Education? And so I, I thought we could turn to you now to think about um, how it was both that CRT came to shape your work um, in relation to education policy and curriculum and training, and what were you trying to use CRT to do in those spaces? 
Well, thank you, Danny. I think uh, I want to back up a little bit and just say that I just have been thinking so deeply about this notion of school integration or school desegregation. Uh, because one of the things that you learn when you grow up in a place like Philadelphia is that somehow you're from the North and somehow things are better and somehow we got it right. And I kept saying, no, we haven't. I, you know, I could see it each and every day. And one of the stories that really shaped my life was uh, that of my own family. My, my dad is a World War II veteran and he comes out of uh, World War II the GI Bill is, is passed, and yet he really can't access that GI Bill. But he, he wanted to buy a home for his family. The going rate at that time was about $8,000. And it turns out that that's how much a Levittown home costs. So Levittown is taking folks into the suburbs, these beautiful homes. The problem is my dad can't get a Levittown home because there's something called Clause 25 that says no person other than a person of the Caucasian race can purchase, lease, or occupy a Levitt home. So the difference is that my father buys a home in West Philadelphia, and I tell people all the time, I'm not mad about growing up in West Philadelphia. I love living in West Philadelphia. What's different, however, is that if you fast forward to the 21st century, that $8,000 Levittown house versus the $8,000 house my father bought in West Philly have appreciated totally differently. The West Philadelphia home is worth, and I you know, checked these kind of things, so I looked at Zillow, about $93,000. Now, of course, we're in the middle of gentrification in West Philly, so maybe up to $180,000. But the Levitt home, is assessed at $565,000. Look at the generational wealth. When we think about Black families have about $1,200 on average in wealth, whereas their white counterparts have 147,000, most of it in home ownership. So the fact that there weren't laws in place in say Philadelphia or New York or New Jersey or Boston to create the school segregation. The housing policy, and I always say housing policy is education policy. Where you determine young people, where our students can go to schools, you are making a decision. Where they can live is where they have their schooling and where they have their schooling is about their futures. So I think those are the things that got me thinking from the beginning, you know, how is this possible that, you know, you can have a national law, the GI Bill, and only certain people can actually access it. That same GI Bill allowed Black GIs to go to school. So yes, they could go to vocational and trade schools if they chose to go there instead of to college, but they couldn't get into the union. So yes, I have a, a background in plumbing, but I can't become a plumber. It's that de jure segregation that, that, that is prevalent across the board. It's, you know, it's none of it is de facto. All of it is that the law is operating. It's just where upstream does the law connect. And I'll just say this as a wrap up. I, I tend to visit a lot of classrooms now that we're all in this remote learning. So I visit a classroom in North Carolina 
And the former, the teacher is a former student of mine, high school teacher. And he asked his students to go home and see if anyone in their family, grandparent, great-grandparent, had benefited from the GI Bill. Well, it turned out among the white students, almost all of them could point to a grandparent or great-grandparent who got their first home via the GI Bill. One young man said, my grandfather got the home, took the equity out of the home, and started a business. And he became a millionaire selling brooms and mops. None of this former students, black students, had one relative who could say, oh yeah, I was able to leverage the GI Bill. Now, someone would say, well, how is that possible? Well, you have to remember, it may be a federal law, but it gets administered at the state level. It is all de jure. It's all de jure. And, you know, the, the story is so vivid. And, you know, just as a reminder again, like this is CRT in practice. This is actually taking what seems like a neutral account of public benefits being provided to certain categories and actually showing they have these profound, profound impacts on unequal life chances and that those impacts, not only do they not um, lessen over generations, they actually increase across generations. Um, Gary, I want to uh, just kind of invite you back in here, you know, maybe to build on something that we, that both Anthony and Rob talked about, which is that a lot of the early kind of dismissal or the ongoing dismissal of CRT is that it doesn't take questions of political economy and market inequality seriously, that it somehow doesn't have a, a kind of materialist component. Anthony talked about the kind of contestations around that. And I wanted you to kind of expand a little bit more. You wrote a very influential piece, was very like moving and important in my early graduate days on, on kind of race consciousness. So uh, could you just uh, like unpack those a little bit more? And, you know, we might say in today's terms, it's like a contestation with the kind of mostly white left over the kind of primacy of race in our analysis. But could you talk a little bit more about that and then your attention to race consciousness and what you were trying to do there? Uh, sure, so actually there are two fronts, uh, two really important fronts, I think. Um, and we talk about this in the introduction to the critical race theory uh, book. One of the fronts was the traditional civil rights movement. And the traditional civil rights movements by that time had become tired, I guess is the way to say it had a deep investment in a, in a very limited understanding of racism as basically a form of exclusion and segregation and was not moving beyond that. So that was one front. But yes, another front, when one wanted to look beyond the kind of centrist liberal analyses of power in American society, for law students and, and lawyers, what was happening then was critical legal studies. And critical legal studies did have and does have a, a sophisticated analysis of law and power and, and the relationship between it. What was strange, and, and this is a story of, of racial history in North America for, for very long and, and in Europe too. What was strange is that the very sophisticated analysis that white, the white left, including myself, had developed for understanding law as a false mythology when it came to understanding race, the white left embraced the same simplistic analysis that the liberal centrists had, that race consisted of people having prejudiced views about each other and acting out of that prejudice. It was located in consciousness. It was a mistake of bad apples, of racists. And so as Anthony and Rob both described, 
the white leftists got typically, stereotypically defensive when the question was brought up, what about race in the white left? Kim, Kim and others posed it. Where are the people of color in this leftist movement? And again, there's various reasons for it. One of the main reasons, I think, is an inability to understand race as a material condition, not just some kind of symbolic uh, uh, element of our social field. Yeah, uh, it's so helpful, Gary. And, and I appreciate what you just said there about the complexity it takes. Because when we think about race consciousness or its socially constructed dimensions, as you're saying, there could be a move to say, oh, so if we eliminate it as a category of thought, it no longer bears on our material relations. And you're saying, no, yes, hold on to that notion of it as a social phenomenon category that's constructed and mediated through social relations, but attend to all of its structuring and constitutive material material dynamics. And that requires a much more complexity. And Gary, that story is just, it feels so familiar today in the aftermath of like elections. This is the fault of people proffering identity politics and the inability to think synthetically, synthetically creating together about how those work. Um, so thank you, uh, you know, for adding that piece to our understanding. Um, so, you know, just another just really generative part, Anthony, of your um, body of scholarship is your work on Dr. King, Dr. King's theological commitments, how they shape our political consciousness. At this moment, when King is once again being redeployed and in many ways weaponized against anti-racist, anti-subordination work. Um, it, it brings us directly back to your work. So um, can you just uh, talk us through a little bit about that? Like what's, the, what's at stake in trying to make visible these much more complex and substantive forms of analysis and consciousness that we get from really thinking with a figure like Dr. King? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, so King represented for me the, the way dominant narratives make the experiences, the suffering, the contributions of black people and, and all subordinated people uh, invisible. There, there is a playbook of white supremacy and the ways in which the dominant culture uh, assassinated the radical king and then lionized, as it were, a distortion of king for mass consumption. You know, that's the way that power in general and racialized power in particular gets, I think, legitimized and, and perpetuated, right? And the, the maneuver is almost always the same. You, you've got to isolate a particular moment in a figure's complex and disruptive history, in the history of a movement, and you label that moment as being the quintessential representation of all and everything that that person or moment stood for. And for King, it was the iconic speech on the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 that we hear incessantly, you know, on King's holiday and across Black History Month. And particularly the line where he talks about, I have a dream that my four little children will live in a country where they are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This is the phrase that Reagan and the right latched onto and embraced as the defining essence of what King was and what the whole movement really meant. And in that superficial, vacuous, completely emaciated characterization of King and the movement was lost all of the blood, sweat, and tears, the suffering uh, and the accomplishments of that movement. And more importantly, the complexity of King's thought and many people within that movement. 
the year after King delivers the I Have a Dream speech, he's making a speech about Black reparations. There is nowhere evident in this man's thought that he believed that the civil rights movement was exclusively a symbolic or even uh, facilely integrationist movement. When the Voting Rights Act of 65 is passed, King packs his bags and moves to a tenement on the south side of Chicago because he understood, you know, from the very beginning, the relationship between de jure overt forms of racism and more institutionalized de facto forms of racism that as Gloria has rightly pointed out is all de jure, right? He understood the relationship between what was going on in Birmingham, Alabama and in you know, the Delta of Mississippi and what was going on in the South side of Chicago. He, 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 he simply exposed or unveiled parts of the program because he was a pragmatic idealist. He understood that in order to disrupt and to get the kinds of things out of the system that you had to get, that sometimes you had to move in stages, right? And that people were only ready for certain kinds of action that you could coalesce them around. But it wasn't that he didn't see the bigger picture and was not very much you know, engaged and committed to more transformative forms of change, right? It's the transformative forms of change that begins to call for guaranteed incomes, democratic socialism, critiques and transformations of American capitalism, that begins to critique the military industrial complex that he called by name, right? That begins to unravel all of these kind of deep-seated institutional complexities of power that most disturbed you know, the right and, and in many in the, in the center, which is why he not only had to be physically assassinated, but I think that his work had to be assassinated as well. His, his belief system had to be assassinated in order to have resurrected a distorted image of what he was in order to reproduce and perpetuate the status quo. It is through the commitment to a notion of King as colorblindness, as representing colorblindness, that you then begin to, to get a legitimating ideology in the Reagan administration and throughout that what we're after and what our goal is, is to simply in de jure forms of discrimination, embrace equal treatment. And therefore, that means that if you are discriminating against whites, even if you are trying to make restitution for centuries of discriminations against blacks and others, you are engaging in reverse discrimination. You are violating the fundamental tenet of colorblindness and all that King and this wonderful movement stood for. You don't want to be a reverse racist, do you? You don't want to do to others what others have done to you. Two wrongs don't make a right, do they? Appealing to all kinds of common sense notions with regard to interpersonal relationships and abstracting them to levels of public policy is what colorblindness does and the way that it perpetuates continuing systems of oppression and practices of subjugation. Oh, Anthony, you know, it, it, part of what you just really like raising up for us there is it's not just, it is a cynical limiting, um, you know, move, but also how connected it is to kind of defending and indemnifying a whole broad structure of, a, of an integrationist politics that disavows any other forms of actual material repair, addressing of you know relations, et cetera. So it's not happenstance, it's not just clumsy, right, that this line is picked up. It's central to all of those dynamics about the indemnification and the limiting and the sequestering of these much more radical projects. Um, this is, I think, a great time to turn to you, Kim, for this last part, and then before our kind of speed round at the end. Um, 
So, you know, Anthony is talking about to us about this reduction, this um, kind of reducing King to this one dimensional figure interested only in a shallow form of formal incorporation. And there's some sense also that one charge against critical race theory is that it's narrowly constituted around one pole of social formation and social difference. Uh, obviously, a lot of your work has been expanding and contesting that through intersectionality. And I wonder if you could just talk to us quickly about those connections and how we understand intersectionality in relationship to the, the kind of formation of critical race theory. Yes, thank, thanks so much for that, Danny. And uh, I'm having these these moments of just absolute joy, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, you. going down memory lane and and saying, yeah, we talked about that then, and it's still happening now. It's just absolutely fantastic, and it, it's also not lost on me that these may be the fora that are left for us to talk about these things, because under at least ten of the states, um, this kind of unpacking and revealing would be banned. And so, you know, with that with that in mind, you know, one of the things that um, Gary's comments and, and Anthony's reminded me of is that divisiveness and writing into that is part of what so many of the early critical race theory texts were, including intersectionality. We saw ourselves not as essentializing race, uh, but as creating a non-essentialist material understanding of race, how the fiction becomes materially real. And that ran counter to what so many of our colleagues thought, if you can unthink it, you can undo it. Our point was no, uh, race is, is not a thought crime. Race is a material reality that is partly constituted by law. So that sense of what was in common with critical legal studies, but what was distinct uh, was part of the misalignment. We were aligned in some ways and misaligned in others. That became the space for the development of critical race theory. And I, and I do have to say, as Gary acknowledged, while there were splits, there were critical legal studies people who facilitated the development of critical race theory. Um, Duncan Kennedy, uh, Dave Trubeck, Gary Diller. Right? So I want to be clear that some of this was generative and part of what it generated was some of the essays. Intersectionality was one of them. So there were convergences and tensions everywhere, right? Um, and one of the converging uh, and, and uh, dynamic and one that also reflected tensions was within the uh, sort of group of people of color who were trying to think through this race project. Gender frequently came up and was often a point of contestation within our group. And then that was often a point of contestation within the larger group. So within the larger group, there, there were um, gendered debates with the femcrits debating what we used to call the crit heavies. And then in those moments, sometimes the women of color would side with the femcrits and sometimes we divided with them if their race analysis was non-existent. So just understand that these were spaces of conferences and uh, retreats 
people would have a line on whatever the conflict was. And that line was often framed in ways that had to speak to multiple audiences at the same time. As Gary mentioned, there were a lot of different intellectual traditions in that group. So any kind of intervention was at least aware of how it would be heard by the different political and ideologically invested folks. Intersectionality initially was a speech that was given in one of these events. I was looking at law cases in which Black women were the plaintiffs and was looking at the various ways that the courts resolved it, sometimes saying that Black women can't make a claim on their own. They've got to fit within what a white woman's claim was. And other times saying, you know, your situation is too distinct and too particular for you to represent anyone. It was like, okay, which is it, right? We either have to be part of white women and and men of color, or we can't say anything because we're too distinct from that. That just seemed like a, a complete and total paradox. And so what I was trying to do was figure out what this was telling us about the actual structure of anti-discrimination law. And the metaphor of the intersection was primarily designed to first lay out the vulnerability of actually being targeted um, and experiencing a discrimination on the basis of race and gender. And then, and this is the most important part, the law replicates and doubles down on that injury by saying your injury is one that the law is incapable of acknowledging and recognizing. If you can't say it's about race or you can't say it's about gender and you're trying to say it's about both, you're basically asking for preferential treatment. You're asking for two bites at the apple when no one else is asking for two bites of an apple. Well, my point was that nobody had to ask for two bites of the apple because the law was structured in a way that placed Black women precisely at the margins in a double kind of way. So so that's where intersectionality initially came from. It's like a transcript of fights that we were having and an effort to explain why we needed to think far more critically about anti-discrimination law, not separately on the basis of race and gender, but in an intersectional way. It always strikes me, and I always have a sense of people who have encountered intersectionality without having gone first through critical race theory, because they see it simply as identitarian. They don't see the structure in it. And they don't see that the contradiction is what I'm actually trying to interrogate. So some part of this moment allows for a reattachment of intersectionality to its critical race theory origins. And then beyond that, so we have a sense that intersectionality was always about structures and how structures apprehended identities in ways that created different forms of discrimination. Wow, I, that's just so central. And, and Kim, the way in that first and second part of your comments, that intersectionality is self-derived from an engagement with a really broad genealogy, intellectual genealogy and tradition. Um, Kim, let me, I, I, my mind is blown. I've been back to school again. This has been so rich. We have five minutes left in the session. The question here is, what are the insights from all of these amazing stories and experiences um, and engagements that we want to bring to bear in the current moment? Kim, let's start with you. What's the, what's the one insight? I think the one one insight is if we historicize our ideas, the best defense is that offense. The offense is talking about the institutional 
and social origins of these ideas. We weren't sitting somewhere in an ivory tower. These came out of institutional struggles about race, about gender. And therefore, this is another moment where those, those conditions may be precisely what we need to re-energize and really frame critical race theory even more broadly. Um, I, one quick takeaway that's really a takeaway for me about intersectionality is the importance of seeing the parallel and reflecting forms of power across different, what we commonly formalize as identity groups, and therefore the converse kind of looking forward possibility that we have to keep connected with, I think, as hard as it sometimes is, that we have to work in coalitions. We have to work in multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions. That's, that's the only way I think we're gonna move forward. Thank you, Gary. Reminding us about that relationality is, is such a, a central to the story. Uh, let's do Anthony and then Rob, and we'll turn to Gloria for the last word. Anthony, go ahead. I, I wonder, um, is there a Black Lives Matter without you know, Cornell West's Race Matters? I was sitting with Cornell when the people at Beacon you know, called him and asked him to pull together some essays for that edition. And I know that part of their motivation at Beacon was the stuff that they had been reading and hearing about critical race theory. So Black Lives Matter, race matters, critical race theory, they're connected. And I guess the point that I wanna leave you with is that you know, the production of critically engaged knowledge, it matters. So whatever walk of life you're in to engage in these ideas critically and disruptively, with regard to altering paradigms of understanding and being able to challenge existing hegemonies and hierarchies of power is of critical you know, importance. And so I encourage everybody to be engaged in that process, no matter what walk of life you're in. Be an organic intellectual, wherever you're situated, think critically about the, the power hierarchies of where you are located and try to disrupt those through thought, word, and deed. The importance of everyday consciousness and all of us as uh, producing knowledge and creating knowledge. Rob, to you, and then we'll uh, turn to Gloria at the end. Yeah, just echoing Gary's point, um, allies are important. And I found that in talking about race with my uh, allies or giving workshops or faculty brown bags or whatever I'm doing, that, that humor <laughs> helps a lot. Uh, and so the takeaway for me is that I've been able to do this stuff in Arizona for 32 years and I'm still here. They haven't gotten me down yet. Uh, and I think it's because Indian humor is something that you know, is, is really deeply ingrained in our culture. Uh, and it's the way that we sort of get through difficult moments and, and tell difficult stories. Uh, and so my takeaway is, uh, if you're going to talk about this stuff and build allyship, develop a sense of humor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Robin. That humor comes from a long, deeply, you know, experience of survivance about what it takes to, um, to be here in this world. Uh, Gloria, uh, to you for the last word. I still have the same question, Danny. How do you explain racial disparity? I know that from 1619 and before, uh, for Black people, to maybe the mid-20th century, your explanation was eugenics. These people just not good enough. Then you move to what might be thought of as a kind of equal opportunity explanation. But we saw retrenchment and retreat from every opportunity, whether it was Brown, whether it was affirmative action. So... 
for me, critical race theory helps explain that question. Give me a better explanation, I'll be ready to move. So that's the thing that I wanna to say to people, you know, we don't have to get into ad hominem attacks like these folks are. Ask them to give you the warrants. Thank you. That's the question. Thank you so much, Gloria. Uh, Kim, I'm just gonna turn it over to you uh, to help us uh, take us home from this amazing last thank hour and a half. Thank you, Danny. And thank you for your amazing, amazing moderation. You have set the bar very high for all of us. I don't, I don't appreciate coming after you tomorrow. So <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so folks, we hope that you are enthused, activated. We hope importantly, you can start checking off some of those myths that you hear so much about critical race theory, that you've got things to say back. And we also hope that you are able to articulate some of the themes that arise out of a critical engagement with race, one that does not think about race as just skin color and doesn't see racism solely as a consciousness issue, but instead you're able to explain uh, some dimensions of how racism and racial power are structured and what it means for colorblindness to then be framed as the solution. And lastly, we hope that you you have some sense of uh, frequently asked questions, the things that you know people say or ask about what this ban is about, that you have the ability to begin to fill in the blanks for the majority of people who we firmly believe would, would side with us if they had any idea what's really at stake. And so that's why we're so pleased to have all of you with us. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced and edited by Julia Sharp-Levine with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Ashley Julian, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.